BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the outcome of state propositions has inspired a lot of headlines like California isn't as liberal as you think. Voters turned down an opportunity to repeal the ban on affirmative action. They sided with corporations against a state labor law and rejected increasing taxes on commercial properties, all while voting overwhelmingly to send Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the White House. But longtime residents will tell you that California voters have always been complicated with competing priorities. And in this hour, we'll look at how that played out in 2020. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California voters may be going 65 percent for Biden-Harris and poised to help Democrats broaden their supermajorities in the state legislature, but they don't support every proposition backed by the state's Democratic Party or Governor Newsom, and that's what played out with key state propositions. 2020 also revealed some important lessons about how our way of legislating at the ballot box is evolving. Here to talk us through it all, Lisa Garcia Bedoya, professor of education and political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Her books include Latino politics and mobilizing inclusion, transforming the electorate through get out the vote campaigns. Thanks so much for joining us, Lisa Garcia Bedoya. Thank you for having me. Also with us is John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Thanks for being here, John Myers. Good morning. David McEwen is with us as well, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University. David McEwen, glad to have you. Thank you for having me. So before we dig into specific propositions, David McEwen, give me your quick top-line observations about this proposition season? Well, if you look at this proposition season, it continues what we have seen the last couple of cycles, say since about 2012. Generally, uh, the rate of passage has gone up since that time, Mm -hmm. and money is a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. That is a lot of play for Proposition 22, right, for the most expensive ballot measure in California history. But a lot of money being spent overall. Only a few ballot measures tend to become magnets for campaign spending on both sides. And and California voters express kind of these mixed preferences, kind of these competing traditions, competing minds. We've seen that throughout the ballot measure process and the history of California. But overall, uh, generally opponents have done better than supporters. 
But this particular election, there are such a, a set of mixed results of both minds of the California voter or all minds of the California voter <laughs> that it, it places forth, if you will, some kind of perplexing issues for what's happening long term in the ballot measure process mm. and short term. This obviously affects the legislature, the governor and what comes next here in California. All right. Well, we'll dig into all of that. But let's start with a couple of measures that weren't even close. John Myers, like 17, which gave people on parole for a felony, the right to vote, and also voters handily rejected 20, which wanted to be tougher on crime, tougher on misdemeanors, and make it harder for people to qualify for parole. So criminal justice reform did well, except with 25. Can you talk about that and how you're interpreting that? Yeah, and, and I'm not sure, Mina, if I looked at all of them that I would put them all in the same bucket. I mean, I think it's possible to, but here's why I would, would probably not. On Prop 17, as much as we've talked about voting rights in this election cycle, uh, you look at the title and summary of Prop 17 and the voting rights of someone who has done their time in prison, and I think it it, it goes beyond a criminal justice conversation to the fundamentals of democracy. And I'm mm. not surprised that would pass so handily. Prop 20, we could have a conversation about whether voters remember that they changed criminal justice rules and liked what they did in prior elections and therefore said no to Prop 20, um, though I suspect it kind of got lost in the shuffle. There was so much money on other ballot measures, which I know we'll talk about. Prop 25, I think, is probably the most interesting one to me out of the criminal justice state, which really was the, the, the voters overturning what the legislature did, uh, right. rejecting this idea to move away from cash bail in California. And that one I find fascinating because there really wasn't much of a campaign from the bail industry after they got it on the ballot. They spent all the money to, to qualify this. This is a referendum overturning uh, a legislative action. And this, to me, is kind of a story of the civil rights groups that are all in favor of doing away with cash bail, disagreeing over this particular version of how to, to do away with it. And at the end of the day, there just wasn't enough of a campaign. I talked to the people who really wanted uh, the cash bail system to be abolished, who wanted Prop 25 to pass. And they said it was very hard to get people to dial into it because a referendum is different. You can't say the bad guys are behind this, so vote no. You have to say the bad guys are behind it, so vote yes. It's the nature of a referendum. And so I, I don't know that I would take a huge criminal justice uh, view of all of these. I think that they met different fates for different reasons. And to David's point a moment ago, this was a confusing ballot to try to get the, the lesson out of. It was a long ballot, and it was dominated by some that had a ton of money, none of the which ones that I've been talking about had a ton of money. John, do you think the debate over cash bail is effectively over with this, or do you think it's just beginning? <laughs> I, I tend to think it's not over because the people who are passionate about moving away from this system and passionate about the idea of uh, getting past this, I, th this notion that money dictates whether or not you get the same shake out of the criminal justice system. Money dictates whether you stay in jail or whether you get to go home and await your, your court uh, hearing. Those people are not going away. But I will tell you, this was a hard fought battle at the state capitol in 2017 and right. 2018. Governor Jerry Brown signed it. And I think it's going to be very hard to come back and do this, at least in a in the short term, to get another shot at this. Lisa Garcia Bedoya, John Myers also mentioned the fact that this really basically circumvented a state law. Prop 22, in many ways, did a similar thing. It was an and run essentially around AB5. What do you make of that? And do you think we'll see more of that? Unfortunately, I think we will, particularly in cases like Prop 22, where you have corporate interests that have a very strong 
concern about the outcome. And so what we really saw, at least with 22, was the willingness to overturn the will of the legislature for those folks who are most directly affected by that particular bill. The one other thing I would note about 25, I completely agree with John, um, over 800,000 folks who voted for president did not vote on that proposition. So there's a 5% gap in terms of the number of people voting. So I think especially when you have a situation like that where you're being asked to overturn the legislature, I think it confuses voters and that can also help explain the outcome in that instance. Do you think it also helped explain the outcome in 22, David McEwen? Well, I mean, look, uh, 22, the pro side had more money than God in that ballot measure. So that certainly helped. Uh, but but also, if you look at this, the roll-off on ballot measures overall, which is what uh, Lisa was talking about there, it, it's not as great in, on many of the ballot measures. That is, the, the, the voters did seem to kind of pay close attention, but also, as John pointed out, to title and summary. And when you look at title and summary, for example, in Proposition 22 or some of the other measures that we'll look at, it, it really can set the tone for voters. They look for shortcuts. They look for cues. They lack that. And that's where a lot of money or resources, again, is necessary but doesn't guarantee success. But in the 22 campaign, you also had the opportunity to not just hit people on the airwaves, uh, over the air on television, digital ads, uh, certainly through the app. And, and the lesson of 22 is that model is scalable. It's scalable up and down the ballot in localities mm. outside of California. And the broader lesson is that win or lose, the California initiative process becomes a playground to test issues and ideas. That spills over to other states, whether those states are Florida, whether those states are Michigan, uh, in the case of, say, Proposition 209 years ago, or Proposition 13 into Massachusetts. Nonetheless, the California ballot measure process remains this battleground testing ideas that goes up and down the ballot, and 22 provides that scalability now, that lesson for all sides. So what does that mean then, Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, for a proposition like 16? Uh, in That's been one of the concerns about California's ability to have a national ripple effect, that people will basically either shy away from trying to uh, make a stronger push for race and sex considerations, ethnic considerations in college admissions and hiring and so forth. Are you concerned about that? Well, I think to, to John's point, I think it's hard to know what exactly is the lesson to be taken from 16. 16, there wasn't really a yes on 16 campaign in any meaningful way. I do think that the the ballot wording was very confusing, um, especially if you looked at it in Spanish, it was even more confusing whether a vote for 16 was to sustain Prop 209, to get rid of Prop 209, what what yes meant, I think was difficult. And then I think it's important in the absence of a yes on 16 campaign that you really were trying to push against 40 years of negative narrative about affirmative action. And so I think for voters to understand what was at stake and to really understand um, the damage that Prop 209 has done, at least when we think about both in higher education and in contracting at the governmental level, I think that story just didn't get out there. And so it helps to understand why, in the absence of that kind of information, voters would have decided to just leave things the way that they are. It's interesting, John Myers, because didn't the yes on 16, the yes on repealing 209 and allowing consideration of race, ethnicity, and gender in, in hiring and contracting and, and college admissions, didn't it have a pretty big fundraising advantage? 
Yeah, I mean, it did, but I would say it had a fundraising advantage because the the people who wanted to keep Prop 209 in place had no money, really. I mean, so, you know, you have an advantage over someone who has no funding. Absolutely. The story of Prop 16 to me really is a, quite frankly, it's a, it's, it's a political blunder. And this is on the legislature. Um, and, and regardless how you feel about Prop 16, I'm just talking about the political machinations that got it on the ballot. The legislature put this on the ballot. And the legislature had two choices here. First of all, they took action on this to put it on the ballot, I would argue, fairly late in the cycle. They didn't take action until the summer. This didn't get on the ballot until then. And so now you did not actually have a political campaign organized to, uh, to reinstate affirmative action until the summertime. I think they got started too late on that. And the second one is the legislature crafted the ballot title and summary. This is the, the mechanics of the ballot measure industry that people don't talk about a lot. If you go the, the route of an outside group putting it on the ballot, the attorney general crafts that title and summary. We can talk in a moment that some people were very unhappy with the attorney general's work on some of these other propositions. Hmm. But the legislature crafted this title and summary. And the title and summary, I think, gave some people some pause because it did not exactly sound like it was a positive step toward reinstating affirmative action. And again, I just you know, marvel at that. These are the legislators. They are politicians, but they did not see, I don't think, clearly the political campaign ahead. I think they thought this was going to be a slam dunk. And the polling showed from the very beginning that it was not a slam dunk. And yes. the final result is that voters said no. Again, we're talking with John Meyer, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times, Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, Professor of Education and Political Science at UC Berkeley, and David McEwen, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University. And you, our listeners, are with us. What state propositions did you wrestle with the most? What influenced the way you voted on key propositions? What did you find different or concerning about the propositions or the way they were handled by campaigns in 2020? Give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the fate of California's ballot measures and what it tells us about the California electorate and the mood of voters with John Meyer, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times, David McEwen, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University, Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, Professor of Education and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. And you, our listeners, are with us telling us what propositions you wrestled with and what influenced the way you voted on them. And what are some of your questions or concerns about how things played out. This listener tweets, Prop 22 showed the damaging influence of Citizens United. Props are often written to confuse. The system of props is broken. Lorraine tweets, many people don't take the time to do the research. They read the paragraph in the voter guide or on the ballot and don't really understand what they're voting for. 
Just before the break, we were talking about 16. And, and just one last point on this, which I was struck by David McEwen, was that the California electorate basically seemed like it was at a point where it was ready for something along those lines. And the other reason that supporters of Prop 16 thought this was the year to do it, besides the fact that it came in, you know, at the height of anti-racism protests, uh, was the fact that they were anticipating big voter turnout. And that, in fact, did happen. Right, David McEwen? Why did that not translate? Right. It, it did happen. I mean, if you think about the election, right, you had the pandemic, the recession, uh, the social and political protests, the upheaval going on. California is really in some ways the center of anti-Trump or counter-Trump, even though he got over five million votes. You had high turnout uh, in this election. And, and But the California voter is also conflicted. That uh, They're conflicted about spending money. Bonds are having a more difficult time. School funding is having a more difficult time. At the local level, that's a little bit different. But, but this California voter... Uh, you know, Carrie McWilliams wrote about this decades ago about California, the great exception. It, it is a place that has really competing traditions and competing minds that clashes in the ballot measure process. And as your listeners have, have tweeted, if that is a place where people are using title and summary or just a paragraph, not reading the whole thing or not understanding that a yes vote can be a no vote or a no vote can be a yes vote and all of the spending that is going on, when in doubt, they will opt out and vote no. What's surprising is the last couple of cycles that we've gone up to about a 40% passage rate when historically it's been about one in three that passes. So the smartest money in politics for decades has been on the no side of California ballot measures. And that's because the California voter remains conflicted. And I think that's the mixed message we get out of last week's results. Well, I want to bring Janelle Salonga into the conversation. They're a senior at UC Davis and fellow with the Cal Matters College Journalism Network. Janelle Salonga, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mina. And so you interviewed a lot of students, and I'm wondering what were the propositions that were most important among students? Because really, young voter turnout was much higher this year than in 2016, and potentially when the numbers come in, you know, the highest it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of um, students that I interviewed were often talking about Prop 22, largely because of the ads that they saw popping up, you know, every time they turned on YouTube or Netflix um, or Hulu, but also because of the ads that were showing up on Uber and Lyft apps. Um, and a lot of other young voters were really mobilizing around Prop 15 and Prop 16. Um, in part because 16, like you mentioned before, came in at a time when there were a lot of anti-racist protests. A lot of students um, were hearing about Prop 16 because all of the three uh, California public co college systems publicly came out and supported it. So did you find that students were supportive of 16 and 15 more than not? I think it was a lot more complicated than that. For 15, uh. I think, a lot of students I talked to were pretty supportive, but that was largely because they hadn't really heard any messaging otherwise. And Prop 16 is where it got kind of hairy because the language of the prop seemed to be confusing for a lot of people because it said, you know, something to the effect of this would bring affirmative action back and allow um, public institutions to consider um, race, gender, et cetera, in hiring, in accepting individuals. So a lot of folks read that as, you know, we're bringing legalized 
discrimination back. Um, but there are definitely students who felt very strongly that affirmative action should be reinstated and that it provided a pathway for folks who were underrepresented or marginalized and didn't have the same opportunities as other folks, whether that be because of their race or their gender, um, that affirmative action should come back. But clearly that wasn't a belief shared by everybody. I'm curious what students you've spoken with make of the outcome now of 16 going down, of 15 now going down, the, the proposition that would have raised commercial property taxes, and and even the presidential election, which for many, it was the first time they were voting in it. What do you think that, what are they saying about what it's teaching them about the California electorate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think with the props, um, there is some sense of disappointment, especially, of course, from the yes parties. Uh, I think in terms of Prop 16, a lot of folks are kind of organizing and looking towards the future, how um, with regard to how they can continue to support and bolster existing retention efforts for underrepresented students, uh, Black, Latinx students specifically. And in terms of the election, just overall, the electorate, I think a lot of folks are starting to realize that California isn't as quote unquote liberal, quote unquote blue as they thought, um, just because of the outcome of a lot of the props, especially with things like not just Prop um, 15, but you know the rent control proposition. A lot of folks are, or a lot of young folks, I think, are a little surprised by that. Janelle Salonga, senior at UC Davis and fellow with the CalMatters College Journalism Network. Thanks so much for talking with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you again for having me. And let me go to listener Scott in Fairfax. Hi, Scott. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks um, for calling. I just yeah. wanted to share that on Prop 15, as an example, I just wanted to point out that details really matter. So I very much support raising commercial property taxes. And I very much want the schools to have more money. But a $3 million threshold for total property holdings was just far too low, in my opinion. And it was going to hurt a lot of um, property owners on Main Streets in towns like Piedmont Avenue in Oakland or Main Street in San Anselmo, where these smaller um, properties that have small businesses like coffee shops and, and local restaurants and the, the few local bookstores that still remain, the property taxes shot up, the rents would shoot up. And they're already suffering from the pandemic and losing mm. their customer base. So I just thought it was really bad timing and $3 million total property holdings were too low. If it had been $15 million or something like that, I would have voted for it. Lisa, Gar yeah, Scott, thanks so much for sharing that. Lisa Garcia Bedoya, you know, as we know, Proposition 15 would have raised commercial property taxes that were historically protected under Proposition 13. It's interesting to hear Scott saying that the sort of the pandemic loomed in his rationale and also, you know, thinking about whether it really was going to uh, hurt shops on Main Street. What are your thoughts on that? What role do you think the economy played and the pandemic, I guess, played in all this? Yes, I, I think it played a huge role. And for exactly the reason that Scott just said, I think we all have been faced with, you know, just the quiet in our downtowns and worry about all of our local businesses. And, and so I think people were worried about those businesses. I also think um, if you look at the polling, so the Berkeley IGS poll from October 2020, so about 
two weeks before the election, um, the No on 15 campaign really emphasized that this was really, this bill was a Trojan horse and that the next step would be uh, raising residential property taxes. And so the question that the poll asked was, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? The proposed changes to how commercial and industrial properties are taxed under this year's Proposition 15 ballot initiative are only the first step to making other similar changes to the way residential properties are taxed in the future. 56% of voters and of folks who answered that survey agreed or strongly agreed or agreed with that statement. 60% of whites, 52% of blacks, 49% of Latinx respondents, and 56% of AAPI respondents. So I think the combination of worry about small businesses plus a concern that this was going to lead in the long term to a significant increase in residential property taxes, even though that wasn't true, um, can help explain the vote on Prop 15. Hmm. Well, let me go to Bradley in Foster City, who also wants to say something about Proposition 15. Bradley, thanks for calling. Hi. Uh, yes. My question really is, uh, I like what, what the prior uh, caller just said, um, but I really feel like like uh, the inequality that we're is so much becoming more and more discussed. I feel like Prop 15 should have been, I voted for it, and I feel like, yes, maybe it should be a lower threshold. Really what we should do is have tiered uh, property tax, maybe something where the first million is exempt. Everybody who lives in their house is exempt, but I think the fear is really that it would spread to residential, but we got to get something started because, um, you know, really this is just worsening inequality by, you know, starting with children, the newest, most innocent generation. And I hope that uh, people could stop looking just at their own economic interests. I mean, I think that was the fear of why it was defeated. And hopefully what we could migrate towards is something with a, with a tiered uh, property tax. And I think it should be, uh, you know, say 1% for the first tier of, of value, and then it should go to a higher level rather than just being straight a level. So, um, and eventually I'd like to see it go to residential. But really that's more my comment. And I'd like to hear what your guests think of that idea, type of idea. Yeah, Bradley, thanks. I, John Myers, do you want to respond to that? I think there are a lot of different ways to do it. I mean, I, I'm struck as I was sitting here listening to this, Mina, that um, I've been fortunate enough to be on forum programs for the last 17 years. And the number of times I've talked about the split role idea of property taxes on this program, because it's Proposition 13, it's the lingering effects of Prop 13, what voters thought they were doing or not doing in 1978, did businesses deserve the same tax break that residential homes deserved? And this was the grand quest, uh, and this was the chance to actually do it and, it, and it flopped, and it flopped for a few reasons we can talk about. But I think to the caller's point, um, there are a lot of people who want a different look at tax equity in this uh, state, whether it's property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes. Um, they want a different conversation about it. It's hard politically to have that larger conversation, and that's the rub is that there's a great policy reason to do it, but it's very hard to get all the disparate forces together to come up with something broader than this. And Prop 15 was the opportunity, uh, at least in the minds of supporters, to start that conversation. The caller right. prior to this, really quickly, I could say, pointed out this issue about the $3 million threshold. There are a lot of political reasons that Prop 15's language read the way it did. It was getting a coalition together to spend the money to try to pass it to fight the business community and the business community won on this one. But the equity issue on a different way really quickly is fascinating from this ballot. Voters said no to Prop 15 uh, for 
the different reasons that they had. They said yes to Prop 19. Prop 19, which we haven't talked about, expands a property tax break for older Californians. So if you want to have a conversation about equity by age and generation, the voters have said, let's give older Californians more of a tax break. And younger Californians may still be frustrated when they buy their own homes because Prop 19 was about residential. Again, taxation is one of the most complicated factors in this state. I think not only the policy, but as I said before, the politics have been super complicated. And I don't know what we do from here. I don't know what we take, except that, you know, people with money um, got their case made to the voters and the voters were a little confused. Taxation. Pam writes, I was very surprised Prop 15 didn't pass, especially now with the impact of COVID affecting businesses and the imbalance of property taxes. Once again, businesses skirting responsibility at the expense, literally, of citizens. David McEwen, you have talked about how California is sort of a Jekyll and Hyde kind of voter <laughs> um, and uh, that we we do want our well-funded schools and well-funded cities and so on, but that we really have a difficult relationship with taxation. Do you think that that's what played out here as well? Yeah, I mean, to, if you think about this and, and to John's point on raising Proposition 19, Proposition 19 was a very complex ballot measure and generally in the past, in the post-Prop 13 era, so since 1978, when a ballot measure has dealt with a tax or expenditure limitation and it's been complicated, voters vote overwhelmingly no. They didn't do that this time. They approved that. And then split role on the equity question in this time and age, they, they voted no. So they approved the more complex ballot measure, but not the clear ballot measure, even with the unintended consequences. But when you look at measures overall. We've talked about criminal justice, affirmative action, and kind of the ballot as a whole. Certain ballot measures start with a higher no vote base or a, a, a lower yes, however you want to characterize it. It's a, it's a harder push for tax and expenditure limitation ideas. It's an easier push for political reform. But then you go to this ballot and you see that 17-year-olds on Proposition 18 who are going to turn 18 by the time of the election, that gets voted down. So it, it is, again, this mixed ballot. And tax measures writ large have a more difficult pull. This is nationwide. This is the rise of Proposition 13 and the creation of, of anti-tax groups that have locked down the legislature. But also it's the bane and, and promise of the initiative process because this is where things get kind of aired out when the legislature is strapped about what to do. So this requires really a heavy lift from the governor, from legislative leaders, and from those in the interest groups that are tilting at windmills about what to do, because split role is an issue that isn't going to go away. And if it couldn't occur on this particular election, in this particular environment, it, it's only going to get more hostile in terms of a ballot and a, and a more difficult lift. That makes it much more expensive to put before California voters as well. Well, Richard writes, your guests are getting it wrong on Prop 16. There isn't a single California voting group. There are at least two. All of the coastal counties voted yes on Prop 16. The rest of California voted no. So the coastal areas of California would have adopted liberal laws and the rest of California not. John Myers, I know you need to leave us at the break. And I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts were of these articles that are along the lines of California is not as liberal as we thought we as people think it is, I guess, or as it's been framed, uh, sometimes by the opposition. But do you think we can accurately draw conclusions about California's political ideology based on the outcomes of propositions? 
boy, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to let the political scientists take a whack at that in a moment. But from the journalism end, I can tell you, I think that California voters are, you know, I think it's true that California voters are not as liberal as the national um, uh, belief is. I think that they have been growing slightly more willing uh, to be liberals, slightly more liberal, I guess, over the last couple of cycles. Let's look at 2012 and 2016. Voters passed income tax increases. Uh, granted, they were, uh, at least in, they were uh, focused on higher income earners, but in 2012, it was sales taxes. Um, they didn't say yes on the property tax issue on Prop 15. I think it does matter by the, the ballot measure. I think there are so many factors in this. I think the the listener who wrote in about Prop 16 makes a really good point, although I point out that those coastal areas, Prop 16 didn't do well enough to overcome the opposition to it in other places. And we are one California, not multiple Californias, even though people have tried to do that. But I, I, I at the end of the day, I, I think that um, this was a long ballot. There was a lot of oxygen, political oxygen, sucked out of this election cycle by the presidential race. A lot of people wanted to be on this ballot because of the presidential race, but the presidential race and the pandemic took a lot of the normalcy, I think, out of this election cycle. And a lot of these ballot measures, I don't think I talked about a lot. And ah. the one that did, the $222 million campaign on Prop 22, dominated that conversation. So I don't know that you can read the tea leaves perfectly. I do think that the electorate is more pragmatic than maybe the national representation is. But I do think there's a there is a strong liberal streak if you find the right proposal. John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Lisa Garcia Bedoya, political science professor at UC Berkeley, and David McEwen, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University, will remain with us after the break. And you, our listeners, too, again, let us know what state propositions you wrestled with, what you think it says about California in terms of the outcomes, and what are some questions or concerns you have about how propositions are handled going forward. 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the outcomes of state propositions with David McEwen, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University, and Lisa Garcia Bedoya, professor of education and political science at the University of California, Berkeley. And you, our listeners, are with us. And Vera is calling from Berkeley as well. Hi, Vera. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, I've never done this before. So, um, well, welcome. Basically, <laughs> The, the, the last comment uh, really struck uh, the heart of what I wanted to uh, comment on, and that is the process of the entire uh, elected uh, election, uh, adding not only presidential and local, but also all these referendums. It was just overload, and a lot of the um, explanations were confusing, and people, I think, the saying no to things, 
which part of it was good, part of it was confusing. So I think we really lost, you know, people who are either unemployed or looking for work or having equity in their home. I, I really would like to see referendums, particularly about taxes, property, uh, uh, hiring, you know, personnel kinds of issues on a separate uh, ballot, and mm-hmm. then also better explanations and just an FYI, polls are not accurate these days, and um, I, I'm hoping that Prop 13 eventually gets uh, destroyed. Thank you. Bye. Well, Vera, thanks for those comments. I think Brendan is with you. Brendan tweets, the description of the props are always written horribly. As soon as the voting was done, though, when I went to check the results, they were stated very clearly. So annoying. Lisa Garcia Bedoya, are we asking too much of voters is this a larger critique of our sort of, quote, direct democracy, our system of direct democracy as well? Absolutely. If you think of the length of the California ballot, what we ask of voters every time, it's often over 100 pages. It's it's incredible what we ask. I have a PhD in political science. I often don't understand what is actually being meant by these propositions and have to go to trusted sources to figure out what really is going to happen. And so we have to remember we're asking a lot of voters under normal circumstances. And this election was in the midst of a global pandemic and the biggest economic downturn we've had in the United States since the Great Depression. And of course, that's going to affect, um, to David's point, the natural reaction that voters have to propositions is to say no. That's the most common reaction because people prefer the devil they know and they'd rather not change things. I think people are are less willing to change things in the current context, but that tendency that John mentioned of willingness to think about criminal justice, to think about um, tax reform that has been true for the last few election cycles in California is baked in here as well. And the last thing I think it's important to say about Prop 15, two things. Um, The first is we need to remember that Prop 13 was called the third rail of California politics for a very long time. The proponents of Prop 15 have been working on this issue for over a decade. Groups like California Calls, PICO, California, uh, Power California, and they knew that they would need a deep, robust grassroots mobilization effort in order to pass this proposition. And the pandemic made that impossible. But I think it's important to note, I mean, I know, uh, I think John said it failed dramatically. There's a 600,000 roughly vote gap right now. We have a million votes outstanding as of as of this morning. Um, and so the fact that it even got to where it got in California politics, I think says something. And the last thing I would say, and I appreciate um, polling has been a problem this cycle. The reason, reason I'm willing to quote the Berkeley IGS poll is because the samples were large enough that I'm fairly confident in the results. And you really have both a race and age issue here with only 46% of white voters in support of Prop 15. White voters in California tend to be older. They are very overrepresented in the electorate. They make up a larger portion of the electorate than they do the population. But you had majority support for the proposition among Latinx, Black, and AAPI voters who tend to be younger just because of the demographics of California. So I think the result in Prop 15 is a little more complicated than just it lost. And I suspect that, as folks have said, the split role will definitely be back in in a future election. 
Lisa Garcia Bedoya, could you respond quickly then to Chris's point? I'd love to get your thoughts. Chris writes, I'm a progressive and generally support the California proposition process, but enough is enough. The California legislature has a supermajority and needs to show leadership and do the hard job of fixing Prop 13. More and more propositions reflect increased laziness of our legislature and our governors. Do you think that that is likely or possible, Lisa Garcia Bedoya, that the legislature would take it up? Or do you think that it will come back in another form as a proposition? I agree that they should. I think our legislature keeps playing kick the can with issues. Um, the Like this, uh, I, I think the, the challenge is in Sacramento, finding the political will to make this happen. Even among the coalition in favor of Prop 15, there hasn't been an agreement of where, what the money would be used for. And so there were a lot of politics even around how that initiative was worded. Um, but I agree. These are things that our legislature should be doing. And these are not things, you know, kidney dialysis is not something that I think your everyday voter should be having to vote on. It should be something that people who specialize in that field um, should be making decisions about. So I, I completely agree that our legislature needs to um, step up and take on these really controversial issues because they are very much affecting the ability of our state to provide the services and support that our, um, our Californians need. Well, Will writes, I voted for Prop 15, but we should dealt with the disparity in assessment and taxation of identical residential homes. Why should I pay 10 times the taxes of a neighbor's larger home? This listener, Krista, tweets, as a Lyft driver, I'm simultaneously angry and relieved that 22 passed. Angry because it allows us to keep being treated as second-class employees, but relieved because I don't want to worry about job security for the moment. I did vote no. David McEwen what do you predict or do you have predictions of what will come back as propositions in another form? Because we did see a couple of those. For example, Proposition 19 was one of them, the real estate one that expanded Prop 13 for older people, but then sort of clamped down on tax breaks for people with inherited properties. I mean, do you have any thoughts on what what you think will come back soon? Yeah, th th there are a few things that so have already been out collecting signatures for the 2022 ballot. You're looking at things like flavored tobacco products, the ban that was placed on that in the legislature. Uh, there's an attempt by those companies that make the products to put that on the ballot uh, in 2022, overturning the work of the legislature. Again, another referenda. You, you will see work as well related to health care, uh, political reform. You could see things also related, if you will, to what is happening in uh, redistricting or, or more broadly for uh, transparency in that process. Also, the, the realtors for having done some things that were uh, so heavy on the anti side against 15, 19, and 21, you're going to see some other elements of this, if you will, headed towards the 2022 ballot. So, so some of those same firms, so same industries will still be here. And also there's been a tech backlash, part of 22, part of 24, this electorate, or this election rather. So look for big tech uh, to have a role moving forward, either as a big bad boogeyman or as a, as a proponent of, of ballot measures in, in the next cycle. Let me go to Jan in South San Francisco. Hi, Jan. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. just want to talk really quickly about uh, Prop 25. I felt very strongly that uh, we do need uh, bail reform. However, I had to vote no on that proposition because just it wasn't clear cut as to what would happen with uh, the, the new ruling, if it would actually be good or bad. So just too many unanswered questions on my mind. So therefore, I just had to vote no on that. 
Hmm. Well, you know what, Jen, you're sort of echoed here in Jeffrey's tweet. Some of us voted no on Prop 25 because we love the idea of doing away with cash bail. We don't like the racism that appears to be baked into the replacement to cash bail. And that was certainly a concern that was raised by the no side in terms of the algorithm potentially continuing discrimination. Let me read a few more comments. We've got quite a few coming in. A listener writes, I voted yes for any propositions which increased my taxes, as I believe I need to help improve California, especially with education education, and I'm low income. This listener writes, Prop 21 needed to be rewritten to not punish small landlords, but keep the pressure on big landlords and property owners. I've seen both sides of the equation. Ha! Proposition 21 is being brought in right now. That's, of course, the one that was related to rent control, right, and would have made it a lot easier, Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, for cities to be able to enact it. I mean, given all the talk about the housing issues in California, do you have any insights into that one? I think this is another one, though, where, um, to the point, I think it was Jan's point, often voters don't like the way things are worded or aren't certain that it's going to have the impact that it's meant to have. And I think rent control is a complicated issue. I think everyone appreciates that housing is a huge concern in California and the need for affordable housing. But people who live in, I live in Berkeley, we have rent control, we still have a housing problem. And so I don't think people see rent control necessarily as a magic bullet. And I think that that particular proposition wasn't worded in such a way that that voters could be confident that they knew that the outcome would be more affordable housing, which I do think most California voters would be in favor of. Well, here's a couple more comments. Uh, Jeffrey tweets, things the propositions as a whole point out. One, legislating by amending the state constitution is a really bad idea. Two, propositions look like democracy, but they aren't. There is no opportunity to amend before the final vote. Three, the legislature should do their job and legislate. Example, Prop 22 should have been handled in the legislature, not the ballot. We're getting a couple of thoughts on Proposition 16. Doug writes, I think your experts are wrong about Prop 16. The majority of voters are opposed to identity politics. They realize that uh, that approach results in a society like apartheid South Africa, and they want fairness and equality, but not inflamed racist divisiveness. A listener also writes, your panelists should give California voters more credit on Prop 16. Have you considered that most people don't think it's a great idea? And that's the reason it didn't pass. But David McEwen, you mentioned in a, a piece that you think Proposition 16, repealing the ban on affirmative action, was actually a couple cycles too early and that California voters will get there. Do you still feel that way? <laughs> yeah, I, I, what, what you see in the ballot measure process, and you saw this with Proposition 13, it, it was there were elements of 13 throughout the 1970s until the critical mass reaches such that in 1978 it gets on the ballot. There's a long backstory there with that. There's a long backstory on getting to split roll. There's a long backstory on getting to Proposition 209 and 187 in the 90s. There will be a moment where Proposition 16 will be rolled forward in a more comprehensive, more cohesive, and really more or better funded effort than we see now. But the ballot measure process has always been that place where things are tested. And I think there is some element of voters in California who are resistant to the title and summary and what was going on with that ballot measure. And as your uh, listeners noted, uh, resistant to identity politics. It's the fifth largest economy. It's a huge state. It's a very, uh, it's a very diverse electorate. And as a result, if you're going to push forward but not have all hands on deck, to push forward on that effort and fund that effort, it's gonna be difficult in a big ballot, even in a high turnout election in the middle of a pandemic. That falls also on legislative and political leaders, people like the governor. 
And the governor took a pass on many of these ballot measures and was absent through much of this process, although he did oppose some of them, like Proposition 21. But he took no uh, role in Proposition 22. So, so there is a role, a, a place where the cycle, the timing is absolutely critical. Can you amend that or provide better cues for voters and better transparency as to what's going on? Absolutely. And in that sense, in this diverse state, we can do a better job in the ballot measure process than we've done. And then that may make it uh, clearer for voters, but also in some ways it might make it more expensive as, as well. So given all of that, I want to put to you the same question that I asked John Myers before he left, which is, are you drawing any conclusions or, or conclusions might be a strong word, but, you know, what are you drawing from the result of these propositions in terms of California's political ideology and the direction that it's headed in based on the outcomes? All right. So I want to make it clear that when we look at the ballot and we see the lack of roll off, it doesn't look like the California voter is, is dumb or out of touch. It looks like they're conflicted. It looks like they are going through and looking at several of these things and, and unsure what to do. In many cases, they vote no. That can be a product of what is going on on, on the degree of opponent spending to proponent spending. Uh, opponents, gen, uh, no money is much more powerful, and that affects voters and their intuition. There are, as Lisa pointed out, huge gaps or differences between the types of voters. Regular voters tend to be wider, more affluent in the burbs, often in counties not touching the water, and, and they don't have kids in school. Uh, the voters that are emerging, uh, the rising American electorate, this subset of voters that is happening nationally and hugely here, so in California, they have different priorities because they're in a different place financially in terms of where their kids are, in terms of their economic future. That clash comes to bear in the ballot measure process. And we see that here with these set of uh, propositions and the mixed results. And all of that becomes much uh, much like the legislature. It gets difficult to broker things. And mm. we don't have, if you will, an amendment process that allows us to do that or to check what is happening. And then in that case, voters vote now. And Lisa Garcia, but 30 seconds to you on that question of what conclusions you're drawing from the propositions at this point about California's political politics and political ideology. We are a diverse state with diverse opinions, and especially things that overturn longstanding policies like Proposition 209, you need to educate voters about what it means. And in particular with affirmative action, we know from decades of social science research that how you word the question determines people's support. And so I think that it was a complicated ballot. We were asking a lot of voters and people expressed differing opinions. Um, but many of these issues, as, as David said, will continue to come back in the future. Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, Professor of Education and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. David McEwen, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University. Thanks so much to both of you for coming on and to our listeners for their insights on this. And thanks also to Raquel Maria Dillon for producing this segment. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We head into the weekend now with a song that's part of our Music Getting You Through 2020 series. It was sent to us by listener Sylvia. I chose the song Higher by Drew Henme because it talks about a way for us to keep a positive attitude during these difficult times by trying to reach a higher plane. Some of the lyrics that really struck me are, Below my feet, the ground beneath supports me. 
I'm looking to the east, a new dawn I see approaching. Yes, I'm climbing higher, so I see a different view. Where the air is lighter, this fire is burning blue. The melody and the lyrics really resonate with me and gives me a sense of calm and peace. Below my feet, the, the ground beneath supports me. I'm looking to the east, the new dawn I see approaching. Yes, I'm climbing higher, so I see a different view. Where the hair is lighter, this fire is burning blue. But I That was Higher by Drew Henme, and thanks to listener Sylvia for sharing it with us. The Forum team supports you as well, and we are Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susan Britton, and Raquel Maria Dillon. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin, and our intern is Jameson Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.